Welcome. I'm your host, Dr. Laura Pfeiffer, and I'm a naturopathic doctor helping you take your hormones from chaos to calm. In this podcast, I'm searching the internet, mainly Reddit, to find out what you are talking about. I'm diving into the questions you have, the things you are too embarrassed to talk about, and helping you navigate our healthcare system with ease. This is the Hormone Hub Podcast. Okay, the question is, weight gain and irritability, are your hormones to blame? Today we're going to cover a number of different topics because this was an interesting post that I found on Reddit and I'll just get into it. I, 27, am having trouble with finding a female-focused GP to help me with my weight gain and irritability. To summarize, I've been experiencing weight gain over the past two years. In total, I've gained 37 pounds. I had been 141 pounds since I was 19 and was stable at that weight. I'm now 178 pounds. And although I'm in a caloric deficit and overestimate my calorie intake uh, to ensure I am not underestimating. Accompanying that weight gain, I've been experiencing extreme fatigue, migraines, headaches, brain fog, focus issues, irritability, moodiness, bloating, heavy but short periods, three to four days, and cramping that results in fetal position, cold sweating. I had a physical job. I left. I now have an office job. I was going to the gym two times a week with my old job, now three to four times due to limited movement at work. This poster goes on to say that the weight gain isn't muscle because they get a scan every few months at the gym to check body fat percentage. Progressively, they have noticed the weight gain around the face and stomach injury. Unfortunately, they've had to take an SSRI, so an antidepressant, uh, to treat panic and depressive disorder. And I am unsure if this has anything to do with weight. However, I started taking this medication five years ago and had no issues with weight up until two years ago. They said that they've raised these issues with their GP and they don't really know what to do and think it could be because of high stress hormone. They go on to conclude, my blood work does not reflect this, but they did mention I had a slightly higher white blood cell count, but didn't view this as anything serious. I routinely get my blood work done two to three times a year, so I have a record of my levels, and I regularly experience low B12 and low iron, even while supplementing with a reputable brand. I'm an omnivore, socially drink, non-smoker, and I don't take any recreational drugs. So why did I bring this case up when I read it? Why did I feel like I wanted to do an entire episode about it? Because I find that this is the case of a lot of the patients I see. They feel lost and kind of drowning in the medical system. They don't really know, again, their doctor doesn't know what to do. Their blood work is quote unquote fine. Everything seems like it should be going the way, uh, that it that it should and so with someone like this i find that the root cause is often a few of the same different things and it feels as though there's a lot going on but once we kind of break it down and unpack it uh it's not so overwhelming so today i want to touch on a few different things regarding this case this weight gain and irritability like i said i brought this up because this is so common this you know fatigue weight gain, brain fog, anxiety, depression, you're eating less and you're moving more and you don't know why you're not losing weight and 
oftentimes there are a lot of other pieces involved, but uh, the things that we see, the things that we, you know, focus on, the things that we care about often are the things like the weight gain, the things that we see outwardly. So my first questions, we know that this individual is a 27-year-old female. So my first question is, are you taking birth control? Because when anyone talks to me about their periods, I want to know, are you referring to your, you know, regular endogenous bleed or are you referring to a withdrawal bleed? That's really important information. We know that birth control is related or correlates to a number of different things, including anxiety and depression, weight gain. We know that it can impact insulin, which can impact your mood. We know that uh, birth control, again, can uh, cause some of these issues. So peeling apart what other layers are involved, we know that they're taking an antidepressant, but are they also taking birth control? The other thing is when someone tells me that you're, that you're bleeding, you know, three to four days, but the cramping is really bad. If you're taking birth control, that gives me a better idea of some causes of uh, heavy periods, but we're gonna go into heavy periods in a minute. My next question is what blood work was done? Because I find that when patients tell me, oh, I had blood work done and the blood work is normal, everything is good, oftentimes the problem is, is the right things probably weren't done or the timing of the blood work was off. And so I'll give you an example. I see a 27-year-old female who comes in with these types of concerns and they'll tell me, yeah, blood work was fine, nothing came up. And I look at their blood work and the things that were run were, you know, kidney function tests and cholesterol and maybe electrolytes and maybe a TSH, maybe, I don't know, an iron if we're lucky. And I'm not saying that these things aren't important and I'm not saying that we don't need to look at cholesterol, but what I am saying is when you come in for the chief concern of weight gain, irritability, there's brain fog, there's other pieces coming forward, anxiety, depression, that sort of thing, cholesterol is not really relevant here in a 27-year-old female. Kidney function tests, while good to have done, are not gonna tell me what your hormones are doing. And so that's the first thing we have to understand is looking at that piece is not relevant in the context of our clinical symptoms. The other thing is, let's say you're on birth control and your doctor runs your hormones. Well, that's not gonna be helpful either. I typically don't run hormones unless you are off of birth control for at least three months. And then on top of that, um, looking at the timing of those hormones. So let's say you are, you do get a GP that runs your hormones, but you don't get it, you're not told when to go in your cycle. You're not told that day three or day 21 is important. And you're not told, you know, to fast for a fasting insulin. Those things are really important when we're looking at getting clinical context from our testing. So a couple things here in this case, when you're dealing with weight gain, irritability, brain fog, everything that we're seeing here, a couple tests that would be really important would be looking at, number one, a thyroid panel. So looking at TSH, free T3, free T4, antibodies, anti-TPO, anti-thyroglobulin. Why? Because we can actually see the full picture of how the thyroid's functioning. Your thyroid can be a really, uh, really, key root cause of weight gain and it doesn't just have to be if your TSH is outside of the normal limits and we're not diving into thyroid particularly today but when we look at the reference ranges 
even across a few labs in Ontario where I'm located, we look at, let's say, Dynacare versus Life Labs, they will have different reference ranges for the same tests in the same province. So if you, for example, I know ferritin, a marker of iron store, will actually have a different reference range on Dynacare than it does on Life Labs. And so what does this tell us? Like what, how valid are these reference ranges when we're saying, oh, I got it done at this lab and it was normal, but because I went to this lab, it was abnormal. So I just had a patient who had a ferritin level of, you know, 15 and it was flagged as abnormal, abnormally low in Dynacare. But if that same patient got it done at Life Labs, the reference range, I believe, goes down to like four. So at Dynacare, they're anemic, but at Life Labs, they're not. This is going to cause you to pause, right? This is why I talk about it's not always about the numbers. We have to take the numbers and put them into clinical perspective with what else we're seeing with this patient. So this is what I talk about when we're looking at things like a thyroid panel. How do you feel? What are your symptoms? Where are you in said range and what do your other values look like? This is why I can't just run a TSH and say, oh, we're great, good to go, because I don't know what that TSH is translating, that thyroid communication, what is that showing me of what your other hormones are doing? If your TSH is elevated or within the normal limits but a high normal, does that mean that your body's struggling to make hormones? Does that mean that your body is not making that T4? Does that mean that the conversion is low? Or does that mean that your adrenals are stressed? Does that mean that your progesterone is low, right? There's a lot of different pieces to that. So starting with a full thyroid panel would be important. If you're taking birth control, I obviously wouldn't check sex hormones, but if you're not, this would be a good thing to look at here. And there's a number of ways in which we can do that. This poster mentions cortisol which is something that a lot of my patients, you know, you hear online, you watch a video about it and you're like, this is me because cortisol touches all of the different symptom pictures in literally every, you know, in every way it can, right? In mood, weight gain, irritability, brain fog, low energy, inflammation. Um, so this is really important to note as well. When we're looking at cortisol, looking at it in the blood isn't super helpful because it doesn't tell us, it's only going to tell us if you have like frank adrenal disease. It's not going to tell us if you have an imbalance or your cortisol curve is not working as it should be. And so these are other nuanced things as it pertains to testing that we need to make sure that we're speaking to someone who knows what they're talking about in terms of that particular test before we interpret it in a way. Testing is only giving you more data and we have to put that data into context of everything else that's going on. So I like to do cortisol at least in the saliva. So I don't like to do it in the blood. I'll do it in the saliva or the urine. Why? Because we have a cortisol awakening curve. And so we should have our cortisol going to the very highest when you wake up in the morning and then it goes down throughout the day. And it goes to the lowest so that you can make melatonin and sleep at night. And so what happens is if we're getting blood work, number one, you'd have to go a couple times a day and who wants to do that? But number two is that the act of getting your blood work drawn, your blood drawn probably causes and elicits a little bit of a stress response. So you're not gonna get a super accurate read. Um, so I like to do a saliva reading or a urine reading and typically that'll just be in with the Dutch test. Then we can actually get a curve of what your cortisol looks like throughout the day. So is it that you you know, don't have it high enough during the morning? Is it that you make it too high overnight? So it's in, in, interfering with your sleep. Is it that you crash in the afternoon so you have no energy and you need that second cup of coffee? 
we can start to differentiate what that looks like. And in the presence of high cortisol, you're going to look like your other hormones are off. So for example, if you are in the presence of high cortisol, your thyroid receptors, your progesterone receptors aren't going to be working as well. So it could be that you have a thyroid panel that looks great, but in the presence of a cortisol that's off, it's not going to feel great. All right, let's get into some causes for heavy periods. And a couple of those I've spoken about in other places, but I'm just going to kind of dive in a little bit here. The first one is an estrogen dominance, anovulatory, low progesterone type of picture. What does that mean? So if we just break down our period into three distinct stages, the first stage is where you're bleeding. It's dominated by estrogen. This is where we're building up the lining. We're getting the follicles, you know, ready to go. Then the middle of the cycle, we're going to ovulate. It's like the main event. The last part of the cycle is going to be dominated by progesterone. This is our luteal phase. This is where we're going to make that progest hormone. From a reproductive standpoint, we're waiting for fertilization. From a you know symptom perspective, we're trying to make enough progesterone to balance out that estrogen so that we are more balanced throughout the month. And then once that happens and we have no fertilization, both hormones go down, we bleed, it starts all over again. How do we get estrogen dominance? Well, there's a number of ways. I've talked about exposure to chemicals. So if you have exposure to um, what we refer to as xenoestrogens or forever chemicals, BPAs, phthalates, that sort of thing, that is going to put you into an estrogen dominant state. Why? Because they act like estrogens. They go into our receptors. They hold a little bit tighter and they increase. They amplify that response. And so that can imbalance your estrogen and progesterone. Another way you can get into estrogen dominance is by not ovulating. I talk about how ovulation is the main kind of event in the middle of the cycle. And if that doesn't happen, then you're not going to make that progesterone in that second half of the cycle. And you're not going to be able to create or elicit that balance. So a low progesterone picture can lead you to estrogen dominance. You can have normal estrogen but you don't ovulate and now you're an estrogen dominant. So these are called anovulatory cycles. Now anovulatory cycles are something we see often with PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome. And this is what I'm going to get into a little bit more here because if we go back to the original post, the real main concerns are weight gain, irritability, there's anxiety and depression which we're medicated for. Um, we have Exercise, despite, I know, not losing weight, we're losing, we're in a caloric deficit. I'm going to talk about dieting in a minute, but we're in a caloric deficit. We're not losing weight. We're moving. We're eating less. We're moving more. And we're not losing weight. And so a lot of times, given we're pairing this with this person doesn't state whether or not they're on birth control, so I'm not sure if that's playing a role, but there is a mention of heavy periods. And so when we look at anovulatory periods, does this mean that we don't get a period? Does this mean we always get a period or we don't get a period? This is confusing for a lot of people. So let's come back to ovulation. We go back to that system. We have estrogen, we have ovulation, we have progesterone. So what can happen is when you ovulate, you're going to, you know, have that ovulatory space right there where you ovulate, you make progesterone, you have this progest hormone, you know, hormones go down, you bleed, it happens all again. But what happens when you don't ovulate? Two things can actually happen. When you don't ovulate, you can not get a period, which a lot of people are like, yeah, that makes sense. Like if I don't ovulate, I'm not going to get a period. But just because you get a period does not mean you ovulated because here's what can happen. If we talk about estrogen dominance and we talk about not ovulating, 
We have our estrogen that's building the lining, building and building and building, building those follicles, getting everything ready for that main event ovulation. Now, for some reason, ovulation doesn't occur. There's a number of reasons why that can happen. But if ovulation doesn't occur, we have a couple options. Our lining can keep building and building and building and building if we have enough estrogen. And we don't have anything opposing that. So we actually could get a period. We get what's called like a breakthrough bleed. And sometimes what can happen is that can be heavy. That can be more painful. That can be have more clots, right? That can be evidence of an anovulatory cycle. So it doesn't mean you ovulate just because you get a period. You can have a heavy period, a heavier period, a clottier period, a period that's more painful, a period with more PMS leading up to that bleed, and that can indicate that you didn't ovulate. It doesn't necessarily mean that you ovulate just because you get a period. So when we talk about polycystic ovarian syndrome, PCOS, we see mental health stuff, we see weight gain, but a lot of people are dismissed because they get what we see as regular periods. Doctors think automatically they don't have anovulatory cycles. But again, just because you have a period doesn't necessarily mean you ovulate. So that warrants some further investigation. And so what is PCOS? PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome, is a syndrome. It has a root cause uh, that is 60 to 70% of the time based on blood sugar imbalances, based on the inability from a genetic perspective, this predisposition to poor handling of insulin. And so what happens is these individuals make a ton of insulin and they become insulin resistant. And that's what causes the hormonal problems, right? When we have insulin going to the ovaries, this causes our ovaries to make testosterone and disrupt ovulation. This increases the risk of cardiovascular disease and diabetes. And in my experience, a lot of individuals are brushed aside as not having PCOS because they were able to get pregnant or because they have regular periods. And this is a problem because of the risk of cardiovascular disease and diabetes. That doesn't just go away. And so understanding that it's not just a fertility issue, it's a metabolic issue. This is something that I would be investigating in this, in this individual. Now, what would I do differently? What would I investigate? I would look at number one, fasting insulin as a test. So it's not fasting glucose, it's not HbA1c. They're not the same thing. I would say 99.9% .9 of the time when I ask my patients, when my patients want to get blood work through their doctor because they may or may not have the means to pay out of pocket for it or they want to see if they can get it covered uh, by their insurance, they will ask their doctor for fasting insulin. They come back. It's fasting glucose. These are not the same thing. Fasting insulin has been shown to be an independent predictor of high blood pressure and metabolic uh, issues in, in people who don't necessarily have PCOS, in everyone. Fasting insulin is a really great marker. And so what happens here when I see my patients and they say, no, 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 my blood sugar's fine, I don't have diabetes, uh, I got my blood sugar tested, blood sugar's good, and then we test their insulin and their insulin is through the roof. Why? Because when you look at the way the system works, it makes a lot of sense. When we look at it, I usually have kind of two sides of the coin. We have insulin on one side, we have, you know, glucose on the other. When we eat a meal, our body brings in that food, we break it down to sugar, our pancreas makes insulin, and 
to put it very simply, I say insulin is the key holder. Insulin opens up the cell and says, here you go, sugar, go on in and do your thing. Now we have lowered blood sugar because the insulin has allowed the sugar to go into the cell rather than staying out in the bloodstream, right? So we talk about blood sugar, we talk about blood sugar being balanced. And so what happens, especially in the case of PCOS, is we don't respond to that insulin as well as we should. So we keep making insulin. We're like, why does nobody have the key? We keep making more and more insulin. And then at some point, no one has the key and no one can open the door to the cell. And so the sugar remains in the blood. At this point, you will now have something in your blood work that says our glucose, our fasting glucose is high or our HbA1c is high because the insulin system got so bad that it completely stopped working. But testing your fasting insulin will be able to help us find that in-between stage, that stage where your HbA1c is normal, your fasting glucose is normal, but your insulin keeps going up and up and up and up to give your body that same response, right? Your body's working really hard. What else does insulin do? Insulin is a storage hormone. It's going to make you store. It's going to make you gain weight. It's also because of this imbalance in blood sugar, you're going to be more likely to have mood issues. Any pre-existing pre anxiety or depression is going to be exacerbated because your mood is not going to be balanced throughout the day because your blood sugar is going like this all day long. So how can you feel balanced? How can you feel, um, you know, not anxious, right? So anyone who has pre-existing anxiety, this is going to worsen it uh, or it's going to elicit any any anxieties as well. Uh, also, having insulin that is high can cause cravings. So anyone who feels like they have blood sugar or um, sugar cravings at night, rather, are going to be uh, a candidate for testing this insulin. So back to this person, I would look, especially from that weight issue, from the mental health piece, we need to look at fasting insulin, we need to look at thyroid, and like I said, we need to look at sex hormones if uh, that's something that is appropriate in terms of not being on birth control. Okay, let's talk about chronic B12 and low iron because I couldn't just fly by this. The amount of women I speak to that have chronic low iron or chronic low B12 is insane. Uh, but we need to talk about a few different pieces to this. I wanted to really talk about iron specifically, but I'm also going to talk about B12 because we need to consider that iron deficiency results from a few different things. So I think a lot of us have uh, just come to the idea that it's normal that women who have a period should have to take iron every single day for the rest of their lives. And I want to debunk this a little bit. We need to consider that iron deficiency results from number one, loss. So where do we get loss? We have a period. So whether we're bleeding, have a period. If we don't have a period, where are we losing it? Uh, a lot of times we go to the bowels, right? Do you have any blood in your stool? Is there any occult blood in your stool that maybe we're not measuring? So blood loss, iron loss. Then we have number two, lack of absorption. This is a common one. Why are we not absorbing it, right? What are the forms? What are we eating it with? I'm talking about from a food perspective and a supplement perspective. Um, or we have increased host needs. So in the state of pregnancy, let's say, we need more iron, we're building a baby. And so it would make sense that we would need more iron in this case. But we're looking at the other pieces. What is loss due to and why are we not absorbing it from food that would make us have to get a supplement? 
So let's talk about uh, taking the right type of iron because this is something that I think a lot of people do wrong. So when we look at the form of iron, it's important that we look at the what you're actually taking. What does a supplement say um, if you are taking a supplement? Because let's face it, if you're deficient right now, I'm not going to say, oh, don't take it because, you know, the reason is X, Y, Z. No, you still need to take it, but then we have to figure out how you can stop taking it. Why do you have to always take it? That's my question is we need to find the right form. We need to make sure you're absorbing it. And then once you've absorbed it and your levels go up, well, how do we keep you there? Why do they keep going down? That's the question. A lot of people think it's like, oh, but but I'm anemic, like I need to take iron, I need a transfusion, for sure you do. But we need to figure out what got you there, what got you to anemia, and how do we keep you out of it, right? So let's talk about form a little bit. Research has shown that a bisglycinate form of iron is better absorbed than a sulfate form. So if you look at the ingredients, the form of your iron is really important. Now, this is a little bit controversial because the form of iron that I typically see given um, from the conventional medical standpoint is usually a ferrous fumarate or a ferrous sulfate, uh, but I tend to give a bisglycinate or a polysaccharide complex. The research I found related to this was really interesting and may cause you to pause the next time that you take your iron. So. Research has shown that elevated ingestion of a ferrous iron leads to generation of reactive oxygen and nitrogen species and oxidative stress, and high tissue concentrations of iron are associated with some cancers, inflammation, diabetes, and heart disease. So I looked further into this. Studies have highlighted the induction of gastric ulcers in rats by injecting ferrous iron and ascorbic acid, meaning vitamin C. We talk about, oh, take your iron with vitamin C, but they've actually shown the, it caused gastric ulcers in rats when they injected a ferrous form of iron plus vitamin C. However, the ferrous iron iron or ascorbic acid when injected alone into the gastric wall did not produce penetrating ulcers. The authors proposed that lipid peroxidation mediated by oxygen radicals played a critical role in ulcer pathogenesis and treatment with superoxide dismutase significantly decreased the ulceration. In a long-term study, an iron-enriched diet affected an increase in colorectal carcinoma in induced colitis in mice. What does that mean? So the first thing I'll say is it's in this study particularly is in rats, but what they were showing is that injecting into the gastric wall iron and vitamin C together caused this oxidative stress that actually led to gastric ulcer formation. Now, we don't do this in humans, we don't inject it into our gastric walls, and so the argument could be made that does it do the same thing? Maybe, maybe not, but this is an interesting finding. They also did a long-term study where they enriched, uh, gave an iron-enriched diet to these mice, and it did cause an increase in colorectal cancer in these mice that had colitis. So we think about, okay, go back to who has iron deficiency? People who don't absorb it, people who lose it, and people who have increased demands. So people with ulcerative colitis arguably might be these people who don't absorb it very well. And so if this is just an interesting finding in mice because it's saying, well, do we, how do we supplement? How do we manage these, these individuals? And does it increase the risk of colorectal cancer? Again, remains to be seen. This is just something that I found that was interesting um, in talking about 
iron and uh, the risks and is it always good because I think we assume that iron is always good and always beneficial and women need iron. Another study in humans, a single clinical dose of ferrous sulfate has been shown to induce oxidative damage in healthy individuals. So this is not anyone with Crohn's or colitis. They gave a single dose in humans of ferrous sulfate and it caused oxidative damage. This goes back to me not liking the form. So then, it, so then I go back to the idea that, okay, so long-term uh, with this mouse study, I'm saying, okay, ferrous iron, maybe it's the form of iron that's causing the issue with the vitamin C rather than iron itself. Maybe we're giving the wrong form because in humans, we knew that a single dose of ferrous sulfate in healthy individuals caused oxidative damage. And so would the same be found with bisglycinate? Probably not. Um, and then there was another study that found treatment of iron deficiency with ferrous fumarate deteriorated plasma antioxidant status and increased specific clinical symptoms in patients with active Crohn's disease. So in this uh, study, they gave patients with Crohn's disease ferrous fumarate, and this actually deteriorated their antioxidant status. So reduced antioxidants, again, same thing like I was saying before, and increased specific clinical symptoms. Again, this is the type of iron, ferrous fumarate. So in conclusion, I would say the recommendation would err along the side of bisglycinate or a polysaccharide complex rather than a ferrous fumarate or ferrous sulfate. So number one, when it comes to iron, the form does matter and research supports this and we don't wanna be doing more harm than good. The second thing I wanna talk about as it pertains to iron is dosing because I find it interesting, a lot of people will get side effects from dosing their iron. So we're considering the form, we're considering the dose. One thing I tell my patients to do is actually alternate day dosing. So not taking your iron every single day. Why? Because I came across this really cool study and they looked at absorption of iron. So basically they gave iron doses on day two, three, four, five, I believe, or one, two, three, four, five. You know what? I don't know what the study was specifically, but Basically, what they were comparing is the absorption based on the day. So uh, they found that absorption on day two did not differ significantly from day five, and there was no significant differences in side effects, but they found alternate day dosing of oral iron supplements in anemic women may be preferable because it sharply increases the fractional iron absorption. So basically their recommendation is if needed to provide the same total of iron with alternate day dosing, twice the daily target dose should be given on alternate days. Um, because they found that a total iron absorption from a single dose given on alternate days was twice that from the dose given on consecutive days and the absorption was better. So. All in all, if you're taking, let's say, you know, 20 milligrams every day, you could do 
40 every other day. If you're having trouble, if you're a person who is taking, you know, you're like, I'm taking a bisglycinate or I'm taking a polysaccharide complex or whatever the case may be, and you're still not noticing any increase, it could be that you're better off absorbing, your absorption would be better every other day. The other thing is, as I always tell my patients to take it on an empty stomach, and people are mortified when I say that. They're like, but I'm going to have nausea and constipation and, you know, all of those symptoms. But the problem is, is the reason you have those symptoms is because you're taking whatever iron you're taking is usually a form that is probably not good, which is like I mentioned before. But also they're going to increase side effects, side effects, something like ferrous fumarate or ferrous sulfate is going to increase side effects. And so let's say you're taking a 300 milligram dose, you're probably only absorbing like, I don't know, 10% of that. And the rest is causing you to have nausea and constipation and, and that sort of thing. And so I challenge patients to take a better form of iron, take a lower dose and take it at night and try alternate day dosing because this can help absorption and this can minimize side effects. We know a lot of things that we eat, including like calcium, is going to interfere with absorption of iron. We know that a lot of foods, especially plant-based foods, are going to interfere with iron absorption. And so when we take it, I usually say after dinner, before bed on an empty stomach, when you have a better form and you have a lower dose, you're going to be a lot more likely to absorb that and not have side effects. And the last thing I want to talk about is what else might be going on if you chronically, uh, sorry, the last thing I want to talk about as it pertains to iron, what else might be going on if you chronically have iron deficiency? What else should we be looking at, right? Like I said, it's about if you're anemic, obviously you take a supplement, you get a transfusion depending on how bad things are, you have to get your levels up, but then what? How do we prevent them from going back down? So the one thing I want to talk about is gut infections. We don't usually think about this, but uh, interestingly enough, H. pylori has been related to iron deficiency, chronic iron deficiencies. And so finding if that's, an in, if that's the cause of your iron deficiency is really important, right? I would say finding the root cause. If, if the root cause is that you have, you know, heavy periods, that's the thing that needs to be treated. Do you have heavy periods because you have anovulatory cycles? Do you have heavy periods because you have fibroids? Do you have endometriosis? How do we treat that to lessen the bleeding so your loss is less, so we don't have to take iron chronically, right? It all comes back to why are we taking it and how do we stop? So one study found that over 50% of patients with unexplained refractory, meaning it keeps coming back, uh, iron deficiency anemia, have active H. pylori infections, and after excluding all other causes, 64% to 75% of such patients are permanently cured by H. pylori eradication. In young patients with a history suggestive of hereditary iron deficiency with an iron higher than expected, mutations involving iron trafficking and regulation should be considered. Recognition of the respective roles of H. pylori, autoimmune gastritis, celiac, celiac disease, and genetic defects in pathogenesis of iron deficiency should have a strong impact on the current diagnostic workup. So again, lots of other causes. We can have uh, iron deficiency that can be a genetic cause. If we find that that's the root cause, right? It's all about coming back to it because if you have an issue with your actual iron processing system and you need to take iron, then that's the root cause. It's a genetic piece that needs to be treated. But if you have H. pylori, we need to treat the H. pylori so you can now absorb iron again. Um, but like I said, 64 to 75% of patients that... Uh, 
were permanently cured of their iron deficiency anemia by H. pylori eradication. The other thing to consider is that normal gastric secretion and acidity are essential for absorbing dietary iron. And so if we look at the fact that if our stomach acid levels are low, then we're not going to be able to properly absorb iron either. And so again, how do you know if your stomach acid levels are low? A lot of people counterintuitively um, don't understand that heartburn can be a uh, signal that you have low stomach acid. Why? Because we need acid to close the flap between our esophagus and our stomach. And so if that is open, we're more likely to have food sloshing up and getting heartburn. So what do proton pump inhibitors do? The medication we're given for heartburn, it stops your stomach acid production. We're assuming that you have too much and not everybody has too much. But what is the consequence of being on something like a proton pump inhibitor is that you're not going to be able to absorb a lot of these nutrients. The other thing we'll talk about is iron and the microbiome because I think it's very interesting. Um, but a study actually looked, I was looking into uh, specific studies, and a systematic review looked at lactobacillus species, so specifically lactobacillus uh, plantarum 299V in the prevention of iron deficiency anemia. It was found that this probiotic improves dietary non-heme iron absorption, uh, and they used it to treat iron deficiency anemia with, uh, sorry, we looked at, let me just find the study here. So we looked at low dose ferrous sulfate, which again, don't love the form, but this was the study, uh, administered to children with or without the probiotic. They found that it helped improve dietary absorption, um, but they did this, again, it was in Caucasian Europeans, so I'm not sure if um, ethnicity matters in terms of the microbiome, what they would typically have versus others would be interesting. The other thing is understanding body inflammation can alter a nutrient's availability, including iron. So there's a lot of pieces. If you are chronically inflamed, if you have gut issues, including H. pylori, including celiac disease, including, um, again, there's a genetic piece, the very small piece of that, a very small majority or minority of individuals, um, but body inflammation can alter the ability for you to absorb a nutrient. Interestingly enough, recent studies have shown that a type of salmonella flourished in the inflamed gut and by administering a probiotic strain uh, it helped with iron acquisition again it's not necessarily in my opinion the specific probiotic but the creation of a better microbiome so I always talk about you know the good guys and the bad guys and looking at if you have you know more bad guys you're not going to have a favorable microbiome and you're not going to be able to absorb the things you should be absorbing. So really kind of recapping, stomach acid, inflammation, microbiome, having the right good and bad bacteria, uh, looking into digestive stuff and infections, H. pylori, celiac, Crohn's, that sort of thing, all part of the pieces of iron absorption 
and iron deficiency, really. And then we have to look at the piece of, we looked at absorption and then looking at loss. Like I said, going back to, is it because you have a fibroid? Is it because you have endometriosis? Is it because you have anovulatory cycles? Why are you not or why are you losing iron or why are you not absorbing it, right? There's a lot to go into rather than let's just test your iron and see if you're deficient and then just treat you for the rest of your life. This is my point when it comes to iron is we need to peel back the layers and see why, right? Again, if you have heavy periods, we know why because you're losing it all the time. But why do you have heavy periods? And is this something we can address so that you stop requiring that iron because of loss? Okay, let's move on to weight because this is the, you know, main poster's main concern. And I've talked about the hormonal reasons why we can have weight issues, estrogen dominance, insulin imbalance, um, thyroid issues. But I want to talk about specifically the microbiome to kind of wrap this up. And as you can see, it's kind of a theme when we talk about you know, looking at hormones, looking at the microbiome is really important. And that's why I wanted to take this episode to really highlight the different pieces of the microbiome that are playing a role when it comes to iron, when it comes to weight, uh, because it does play a big role. This is why when I'm dealing with hormone health, I'm always, always, always dealing with gut health first, because we see if iron's an issue here, um, then it's going to be, gut is going to be one of the first places to look, but also things like, for example, iron deficiency can cause heavy periods, and heavy periods can cause iron deficiency. So these two things work together as well. So again, coming back to finding the root cause is a really important factor here to consider. Okay, so let's chat about weight and really what happens when you, this person mentioned being in a caloric deficit, right? We're eating less and we're moving more. This is part of, uh, this is part of the plan. So there was a study that I looked at and they found that for one day, young women either fasted, consumed 1200 calories or ate normally. Then for four days, they ate freely chosen meals. What they found is body weight decreased significantly after fasting or restricting the diet, although when allowed to eat normally, the lost body weight was regained within four days. Now, you're going to say, well, they were able to eat freely, so they went and just ate whatever they wanted. They, you know, restricted, and then they binge ate. Interestingly enough, there had been no increase in the amount of food eaten, and it appeared that reducing food intake had decreased the metabolic rate and ensured the recovery of body weight. This study suggested that the failure to maintain a reduced body weight does not necessarily reflect an increased appetite or raised food intake. Rather, physiological mechanisms have important roles. If caloric intake is reduced, the body compensates by decreasing the metabolic rate or stimulating food intake. I thought that was really important because I think a lot of people assume, okay, well, when I go on a diet that's like, you know, 1,200 calories, which is extremely low, far too low, but they assume like, oh, when I go off of it, it's just because I'm binge eating, which again, your body's going to stimulate that appetite to bring back your normal weight, but it's not necessarily eating more. It's that your metabolism slows down. 
When food intake was restricted, the resulting loss of body fat was associated with a decrease in the production of body heat and a reduction in metabolic rate, changes that will facilitate a return to the initial weight. More generally, the perceived reward of food increased after weight loss, right? Our body's always looking to come back to balance, to come back to homeostasis. Again, given these responses to dieting, it's not surprising that long term it doesn't work. Any weight that's lost tends to not be maintained. Uh, they actually did an examination of the long-term consequences of low-calorie diets, and they found that between one-third and two-thirds of dieters regained more weight than they lost initially. Weight cycling, or known as yo-yo dieting, refers to a cycle of weight loss followed by regaining the lost weight, followed by a diet again, and so on and so forth. Um, Basically, what happens during dieting, your energy expenditure of muscle reduces. So when food becomes available, your body's going to favor depositing fat. Again, this is, um, we, we always talk about food intake, but really our, the maintenance of weight is such a, uh, a balanced, intricate thing that our body deals with all the time. I found something super interesting that based on what an average American eats and burns each year, calories alone, without comp com compensatory mechanisms, this would result in an increase of weight every year of about 100 pounds. On average, most people gain about a pound or less a year if they're if they're gaining weight. And so we think about why does this happen, right? If we're eating enough to gain a hundred extra pounds every year, it's a lot more than food eaten calories burned by exercise. It's a lot more than just creating a caloric deficit, which I don't disagree is important for weight management, but especially for women, hormones play a massive, massive role. And so when we look at the gut microbiome and we look at weight, this is a really important uh, thing to consider. So a high calorie diet can actually induce changes in the function of the microbiome, which I found was really cool. Uh, obesity can also result from the gut microbiome, which can affect metabolic function and energy homeostasis because the microbes in your intestine actually impact the absorption, the breakdown, and the storage of nutrients. So this can impact the host or yourself physiology. Again, the overuse of antibiotics is linked to the onset of obesity. So we know that the microbiome plays a role. I see a lot of people who are, you know, trying to lose weight and they're looking at uh, a calorie is a calorie, and I completely could not disagree more because the type of food that you eat, the, the nutrient density of the food matters because that's going to go ahead and impact your microbiome or your gut health. Also, your gut is your second brain, right? So it has a lot of other pieces, a lot of other moving parts, and research is just on the tip of the iceberg as it pertains to microbiome, the gut, and so many pieces, weight, autoimmune disease, hormone health, everything else. Uh, your microbiome plays roles in, you know, blood sugar balance. It's associated with carbohydrate and fat metabolism. It helps create short-chain fatty acids, which can help regulate satiety and reduce appetite. Um, so there's a lot of different, a lot of different pieces. We could do a whole episode 
on the microbiome and weight because it's very interesting. But all in all, uh, I want to come back to a few different pieces before we sign this episode off because I know we talked about a lot of things. And I did this on purpose because, I, like I said, it's really complex when we look into a lot of these issues. But this individual's concern was weight gain over the past two years, headaches, brain fog, irritability, moodiness, heavy periods and lots of cramping. They're, you know, trying to lose weight. They're working out. They're exercising. So like I said, it comes back to get the proper testing done. Get your, you know, hormone panels as it pertains to what's going on. Look at the causes for those heavy, painful periods. Do we have to rule out fibroids or endometriosis? Do we have to look at anovulatory cycles or estrogen dominance? Do we have to look at PCOS potentially from this weight perspective? Do we look at insulin? Do we look at testosterone, right? What type of uh, hormonal imbalances are going on? Have we looked at a full thyroid panel? The chronic low B12 and iron signifies that there may be a gut issue. Do we look into the gut and see if there are microbiome imbalances and infections that are maybe impacting both the weight and the ability to take nutrients and absorb them fully and completely? Are they taking the right amount of iron? Are they dosing it appropriately, right? Are they doing alternate day dosing? Should they be trying that? And lastly, again, coming back to the microbiome, how do you impact your microbiome? If it's all coming back to that in some way, shape, or form, how do we impact this in a variety of ways? Some quick ways that we can do this is by having a variety of foods, consuming a lot of fiber and a lot of water, consuming full-fat dairy, if you are okay with dairy, I'm going to put a caveat there, and treating inflammation. This is kind of the take home points today. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode and we'll talk soon.